Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. This is week nine, where we will be focusing on language, culture, and learning. Um, this week's topic is bilingual education, along with literacies of multilinguals in review. Um, to start off, my name is Grace. I'm Zoe. I'm Amari. And I'm Maya. All right, jumping right in, we're going to look at the bilingual education cases. Um, a case that really stood out to me was the No Child Left Behind Act that was talked about in this video. Um, this act was passed in 2001, and basically its main intention was to hold schools accountable for the quality of education received by ELL students. Um, if students do not obey the guidelines of if schools, sorry, do not obey the guidelines of the No Child Left Behind Act, they will lose out on government funding, which keeps their school running. So basically this act allowed school districts um, a small incentive to properly educate ELL students and improve their English. All right, I can start with another one that I uh, want another act that I thought was important to me and it's called the Equal Educational Opportunities Act. So basically, um, this act talked about um, a United States policy that all children enrolled in public schools are entitled to equal education equal educational opportunity without regards to like race, color, sex, or uh, their national origin. Um, uh, it provided educational or equal educational services to everyone. Like I mentioned, this act um, talked about the appropriate actions that must be taken to enforce the EEOA if necessary. And the bilingual education was seen as one of these actions. And it also helped ELLs by creating a reason for schools to be attentive to their needs. So yeah, I thought that act was one of the more important ones that I wrote down. Okay. Oh, oh, you can go Sorry, ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> nope, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, the case I focused on is Brown versus Ford. Um, this one's very important, and I feel like we've learned about it a lot previously as well. Um, but just to summarize, it desegregated the schools, um, and they made this ruling based on the 14th Amendment. Um, and it's also very important when it comes to bilingual education and English language learners because it states that all students deserve an equal education. Um, and yeah. Okay, so an act or a case that stood out to me was the Bilingual Education Act. Um, this act was passed on January 2nd, 1968, and out of all the acts, this was the first and the strongest act for the bilingual education for bilingual education because it not only focused on improving English, but it also focused on improving their native languages. This benefited ELL students because it shed light on the fact that there is bilingualism in the classroom and the act focused on improving both languages and not just English. And I feel like this stood out to me because it's starting to erase, well, it was a start of trying to erase the uh, English superiority um, idea out of people. And then, yeah. Okay, so after reflecting on all of those cases, I just think it's really important to acknowledge just how many cases we have had in the United States revolving around the topic of language and language in schools specifically. I feel like we're definitely heading in the right direction in incorporating the, this like bilingual sort of education in schools, but it's honestly crazy to think that 
we've gone through this many years of court cases trying to you know develop more equality in schools in this nature and i can't believe we still have not fully accomplished it Um, yeah, Grace, I agree with what you said, and I feel like part of the problem is that a lot of these cases, um, while they seem like they're helping and doing a lot, they're really just um, scratching the surface um, of like the problem at hand. And, and for example, a lot of people thought that no child left behind would be a huge like um, up in like progress for schools and then it ended up just having schools rely on standardized testing with um so yeah i think these are all it's like very surface cases All right, so moving on, the next article we had, uh, we watched and reflected on Castaneda versus Pickard. And um, basically to summarize this video, um, it talked about um, how just having this um, program wasn't enough. And it's important that the program for ELLs must be uh, substantive and allow access to both content and learning English so that, the, so that ELLs are receiving the services that uh, they need. Also going on, this case established a three-part test. It said that a district had to adopt a sound approach to the education of children. It had to reasonably implement that approach. And then it also had to monitor what approach was working. So again, it was kind of like the three-part test was like theory, practice, and then results to see whether or not ELLs were getting a quality education. And this is a very straightforward set of tests that can be applied to really any ESL program. It's also not very difficult to determine whether a child is making progress in both English, in both English language proficiency as well as in the content curriculum. And then it also ensured that ELLs were getting a quality education that can be implemented, like I said, in many different schooling districts with little effort. So hopefully this case allowed ELLs across the US to get the services that they need. I still think it could be improved regardless, but this was, I think, a good start. Yeah, for sure. I definitely agree. And I think it's also important <coughs> to add that the video mentioned how English language learners and immigrant students were greatly affected by the Law versus Nichols case, um, which ensured that if a school were to receive government funding, English assistance has to be provided to ESL and ELL students in accordance with the Civil Rights Act. So basically this would ensure an equal level of education for all students. And the Castaneda versus Pickard case, like we said, established a three-part test. And I'm not sure if you included this part or not, but the way that they tested this was through the English language proficiency of these ESL students and also their understanding of the content within the curriculum. Um, and the video also mentioned that this three-part test was strictly enforced by the U.S. Department of Education. So basically this ensured that the same level of education was being offered throughout the United States and throughout all school systems to make sure that all of our ESL and ELL students and programs are functioning as they should. 
Yeah, and going back to what I was saying about some of the other cases, just like um, being very basic and like scratching the surface, I feel like this one actually ensures that they're implementing the right like strategies to make sure that students are making progress, um, especially because they're monitoring results constantly. Um, you can actually tell like if a student is progressing and like learning properly yeah i agree because there was a, a point of time where they believe like if you give the material to the bi bilingual students in english it's they're still going to learn it properly but that's not the case because they're not getting the work in their native language so they're not really understanding this or how you're going to know if they're making progress or not so just like the Lau and Nichols, the Lau versus Nichols case, they like the point of it was to ensure that the students are getting have it have classes that are being taught in a native language to ensure that they have pro like ensure that they are making proper progress, if that makes sense. For sure. And I think another really important thing about this case and this act as a whole is that not only is it positively affecting the students who are in the process of learning English, but it also gives the parents a peace of mind that their students' progress is being monitored and they're sending their kids to a good school district where they are actually benefiting from it. Um, where if it wasn't being monitored, I feel like it would kind of be fear of the unknown, not knowing the quality of education that their students are getting. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. It's one thing to just like say you're going to put in this like program and then it's another like you were saying to actually like monitor it and make sure that they're doing it because I feel like schools would just, you know, say, oh, I implemented this. Now we're fine. We're going to keep going on with our exactly. days. Well, what proof do you have that this the implementation, implement, the things that you're implementing are working? Like, how do you know if it's going to work if you're not properly tracking their progress? And I feel like this at the test gate test i don't know how to pronounce it in picker's case is like showing that they're making progress so for the podcast i just to focus on the birth of american music um and i listened to this one because i'm just really music i'm really like interested in it and passionate about it um and i really enjoyed listening to this because it included like clips of songs and a lot of them were songs that I really liked. So it made it fun to listen to. Um, and pretty much it gave like a really extensive history on music in America and music that's like really specific to America. Um, and so like one big part of it was um, about how our music is largely based on um, African-American culture. Um, and so this is something I've always been very like aware of that we a lot of times steal music from black culture and like a huge example of this. Um, I'm a really big fan of the Rolling Stones and they're like very influenced by blues music and like a lot of black musicians. Um, and then they're obviously like huge, like a lot of times um, white people will profit off of black music. Um, so one part that really stuck out to me was when he said, 
all of these melodies and emotions are things that would have been passed down generation after generation. Um, it's what you would have heard on a plantation. And this was like very, I don't know, this quote just really stuck out to me. It's something that I never really thought about. Um, and yeah, I feel like it just brought a lot of insight into like the sort of dark history of American music. Um, so one question relating to this would be like, do you guys know anything like interesting or like a fun fact about the history of like music artists or just like genre that you guys listen to? Um, I will say I definitely don't know much of the history <laughs> of music that I personally listen to and I mm -hmm. feel like just that personal note kind of brings attention to the fact that a lot of our music that we listen to is stolen from other cultures and we don't even realize it. Like that's kind of just something that I feel like we've grown to be negligent to and we definitely need to focus on that more and bring appreciation to where music is coming from. Mm -hmm. But another connection that I could kind of make to that video and what you talked about is um, in my high school Spanish classes every Friday we would like listen to Spanish music. Um, so I think that was a really cool way to bring music into bilingual education and like literacies of multilinguals because hearing the verbiage and all of that language being spoken in a song kind of helped to connect to the culture as a whole and made it a little bit more exciting. So yeah, that's just from my experience. Yeah, my Spanish class did the same thing. And like, we all started to love it and we would have like, song requests like it was so fun <laughs> yeah when i used to have a spanish class my spanish teacher she used to always play the spanish music for us and it kind of made me like happy because she exposed us to her culture a lot um one other thing to add grace i got i guess i'll go along with what you said too hi i don't really know too much about the background of the music i listen to it's honestly just I honestly listen to music just based on how it sounds and if like that might just sound bad too but like maybe me looking more in depth on like the artists that I listen to and their background and how you know they came about like this sounds like let's say they know that they're taking this sound from another culture maybe they've referenced that in the past but like I don't know about it so you know I'm just listening to it as if they just created it themselves so I guess that's something that I could do better is just look into the music I listen to more. But then another thing, I know you guys were talking about how you guys listen to uh, different types of music in your guys' Spanish class. But when I was in Greek school, so I was in there from like, you know, first grade to like eighth grade or something. And we would always, you know, sing songs, learn songs in Greek, you know, listen to, I still listen to Greek music all the time with like my family members or like whenever I'm kind of bored. So it just kind of ties me into my culture for sure, especially when I go to like this one Greek fest over the summer was super fun. And all they did was play, you know, Greek music, Greek dance. And it just brings you like, you know, I'm in America, but it felt like I was in Greece, you know, with everyone. So I guess I could tie it into that, how music definitely influences my relationship to, you know, feeling close to, I guess, my Greek culture. But yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Go ahead. Okay, sorry. I was just gonna say that looking back on like my elementary school music classes and even in high school, I think they did actually bring a lot of attention to music from other cultures and we would do activities with songs like that. Like 
from all different countries. And when you're that young, like, I feel like you don't realize what exactly that's teaching you. But looking back, I do remember it. And I think it did honestly bring like more of an understanding for other cultures from a young age by doing that. And it just was in a really fun way. So I think that's something that's like very important to include in student like bilingual education for ESL students and for English speaking students to learn about both of those cultures. Yeah, I agree. I think it makes learning about other cultures like so fun. And Zoe, I actually listen to Greek music all the time because <laughs> me and my friend have a European um, playlist. And yeah, like we love it. It reminds us of our families and stuff and like the motherland. <laughs> yeah. But um, just to wrap it up, I thought this podcast was like, um, it added like a really deeper understanding to um, the history of music in our country specifically. Um, and yeah, it was very interesting to learn about. Okay. Okay, so the next video I decided I decided to focus on was a, um, a video about translanguaging by Ophelia Garcia. Ophelia Garcia talks about translanguaging and how it can benefit ELLs. Ophelia describes translanguaging as using language as a unitary meaning-making system of the speakers and all of speakers that are all bilingual and have, wait, hold on, I did not read that right. Let's re rewind, I am so sorry. She describes it as using language as a unitary meaning-making system of the speakers and that all bilinguals have it because they can differentiate one language from another. She also talks about how bilingualism should be used as a system and not as something individual. So you should use all the resources that you have in order to make translanguaging effective. She then goes on to talk about focusing on three concepts when looking at your language repertoire, which is multilingualism, plurilingualism, and translanguaging. I've never heard of plurilingualism myself, so I had to look it up. And the meaning of it is the ability of a person who has a competence in more than one language to switch between multiple languages depending on the situation or ease of the communication. Basically, I think of it as a fancy way of code switching because basically that's what it is. You have to um, switch from one way of talking or one language of talking to another depending on um, who you're around. And she states that all three of these concepts are beneficial to ELLs because it betters their bilingualism and helps them come together as helps both languages or the or if you're multilingualism come together as one language and not as separate languages. All right, so I watched the third video called Practicing Multilingual Identity, Children's Theater. So basically it talked about this one woman and she um, created this uh, Cantonese children's theater to basically help them learn how to speak Cantonese. So giving a little background on her and to summarize the whole, it was like a TED talk. Um, she learned, she knows how to speak three languages, so she's multilingual. She speaks Cantonese, English, and Mandarin. And also Cantonese is the most spoken Chinese language in the UK because she moved to the UK about four years ago. She moved to London actually. So uh, more than 4,000 or 44,000 people speak Cantonese at home and 12,000 of these people in the UK are in London. And a lot of these families are from diverse backgrounds and only one parent normally can speak Cantonese to their children. 
So if only one parent knows how to speak Cantonese in a family, I feel like it would be kind of hard for to pass on that language to their children when um, that's not the only language that's going to be spoken in their household. So these families have been working hard to promote this heritage language to their children. And children um, from these families are not proud of their heritage language. Certain reasons that children, that she expressed that children aren't proud of or to speak their native language include difficulty of the language and the fact uh, that living in an English speaking and the, and the fact that they are living in an English speaking society. Cantonese is just not spoken enough where the children are and outside in society. And um, teaching Cantonese is only really found um, in traditional and old fashioned ways of learning. So uh, thinking about like a young kid's perspective, if the Cantonese is one of the hardest languages to learn, if not the hardest language this woman was saying. So I feel like if you're surrounded by people who are just speaking English, like why even bother learning Cantonese if it's hard to learn? And um, it's just taught in, you know, like the traditional and I guess old fashioned way of learning. And another point that I want to bring up that she talked about was that um, she said that children kind of get discouraged when they're trying to learn this language, because if you think about it on weekends, it's typically um, the second language is taught on the weekends. And um, if children are going to school and seeing their classmates, you know, playing video games, going outside on the weekends when they're stuck doing, you know, work and like writing and all that on the weekends. I also feel like that's going to have an effect on their at least motivation to learn the language. I know when I was um, in Greek school, I went like two days a week. I think it was like Wednesday and Saturday. And, you know, I had to wake up, had to be at school at like nine. So if I had to compare myself to the other kids, I guess it would have been you know, showing, oh, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to wake up and go to school six days a week where other kids are only going five? You know, so that can factor in. And then a little bit more on this um, reading. So um, this woman um, talked about how families are trying to find online social groups to help parents find ways to help one another, to help their children learn the language. So basically, if there's like a Facebook group that, you know, moms create and they're kind of, it's like a Pinterest board kind of, saying like, oh, what are other ways that you guys are teaching, you know, the language at home, just to help, you know, maybe show other ways of learning. But uh, this woman now wants to use theater and drama to help children learn a new language. And this method has been proven successful. So she has four objectives um, within her children's or the Cantonese theater. So basically, the objectives of teaching kids Cantonese is one musicality, two body language, so like kinesthetic movement, three companionship, and then four participation. So basically to summarize this up, these four objectives really help students learn Cantonese outside of the traditional methods. So, you know, they're learning how to speak the different tonal uh, Cantonese words with musicality as if you're singing. Body language helps them kind of visualize what certain letters look like and just, you know, memory-wise, companionship and participation basically just have to do with engaging uh, students in the learning experiment or experience and then participation, just making sure all kids are, you know, participating and kind of engaging with one another and just having fun is the ultimate goal too. So I know that was a lot of summary, but um, I know I'll, I have a 
a few questions to ask you guys. So one of the questions is, would you guys want to learn a new language in this way, this fashion? So like the children's theater, you know, kind of all the body musicality stuff. Or do you guys think that you would want to learn it in more of a traditional fashion? So just, you know, I guess lectures, writing, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so I personally think that I would really like to learn it in this way with those four different methods because everybody has a different learning style. And I think it's really important to remember that, especially as an educator. Um, I think that the traditional like lecture, reading, writing, speaking, like way of language being taught, like it typically is in a classroom, isn't really beneficial for everyone. I never picked up on it very well in that way, but I definitely do learn through actually using my body and like involving myself within the material. So I really like how this way involves body movements along with like the musicality and everything like that. Yeah, yeah I, 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 oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I agree with Grace because like I'm more of a like a hands-on student and like I like that they really made learning a new language an interactive way. I haven't taken my language other than English yet and I'm dreading taking it because it's going to be a lecture. I don't do good with lectures, especially when it comes to like learning another language, because if it's not something, if you're not making it interactive or fun or trying to find different ways to help me learn a language, I am not going to properly learn the language. And I know college is not like high school where they're going to incorporate fun things to do about with it. I feel like when learning a language, you should, no matter what age you're at, you should find fun ways to incorporate trying to learn it. And I feel like the way that they described it in your in the podcast that you were talking about, they did a really good job with it. Yeah, I was gonna say I agree that like the traditional way is really difficult. And like I honestly don't think it's beneficial to anyone. Like I feel like I've never heard anyone say that they like really love their like Spanish or French class or anything. Um and this also reminded me of another class that Amari and I are in right now, where we're learning about, about um, language and literacy development. And like a huge component of it for young children is learning through play and like sociodramatic play. So like make believe and stuff like that. So I think that her like idea of combining a children's theater and learning language is really good and like really effective and fun for like all. Yeah, and then to add on to that, like, you know, you learn a language better when you are young, when you're a child, because it, it grains in your brain better. So um, exposing children to like, like um, Maya was saying, sociodramatic play or like incorporating some type of play into learning the language or encourage them to learn a language and stay intact or like continue to learn a language as they get older. No, for sure. I definitely agree that learning a language young in the, I guess it's called like the critical period or something like that is definitely going to help um, the children um, have a better understanding going forward. And plus they'll just be able to absorb more so they won't, you know, forget it, I guess, as quickly. But I wanted to add another thing. So as I was watching the podcast, um, so I'm hearing this um, woman, you know, show, I guess, the different musicality and all those learning objectives. And I was honestly like trying, like learning Cantonese that she was like <laughs> teaching this because basically she was like saying how there's six different tones and how, you know, I think she said there's 
there's six different ways of saying the same word. So it was this word called like C. It sounds like C, like if you look, but it has six different meanings, all with like half a tone, like as if you were singing shifts. So it was shown on this, um, uh, like this music sheet and it, how saying C in like, let's say the tone F or something like that is a completely different meaning than if you said it in like a, you know, a different, I guess, tone or something. And it was just crazy because when she said, is there any difference in like these different ways of speaking? She, she just said C basically sounding the same. And I had no idea she was saying six different words. So I can totally tell that someone who was just trying to learn this language would have such a hard time as if, if it was taught in the traditional method because I know when I was learning Greek, honestly, the traditional method wasn't, it was used uh, when I was learning because, you know, I had homework, classwork, listening to really, you know, reading, doing all that. But it was also, I just learned a lot more when we did hands-on things. Like, you know, if we did a play and I have to memorize or like my part, it was just kind of fun. Like, although I had to memorize something, it was just fun to act it out and just like engage with my classmates instead of just sitting next to someone watching a lecture, filling in notes, like, it's just boring, especially coming from, like, a children's perspective, like, there's no way they're going to sit there and want to learn, like, the hardest language, so, yeah. All right, so that kind of wraps things up for this week's podcast, so just to reflect back on everything, we talked about the bilingual education cases where we spoke about Brown v. Board, Bilingual Education Act, No Child Left Behind Act, and many more. Um, we also reflected on the Castaneda versus Pickard case, along with the Lau versus Nichols, um, talking about how government funding is not provided to schools if they're not properly educating their ESL students and following through with those programs. And we also listened and responded to various podcasts, including um, episode three, The Birth of American Music, Ophelia Garcia's Translanguaging, and Practicing Multilingual Identity Children's Theater. So through all of those, I think we can all understand the importance of properly educating ELL students and incorporating the English language along with their current language into the school system. Thank you all for watching. Once again, my name is Grace. I'm Zoe. I'm Amari. Bye.